Well, let's begin this morning by taking our Bibles and turning to the book of Jonah, the Old Testament book of Jonah. Now, although your Bibles might not just fall right open to Jonah, that might be a little more challenging book for you to find than some of the others, but Jonah's story is probably one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. Uh, Even people who know little about the Bible, uh, they've heard the tale of Jonah. They know all about the guy who got swallowed up by the fish. However, having said that, let me just quickly give you a reminder of how Jonah's story goes. As you're turning there, Jonah chapter 1. We see there in in the beginning of the book, Jonah is a prophet. He's called by God to go to the city of Nineveh, the capital city of his enemies. And he was to warn them that judgment is coming. He was to call the people of Nineveh to repent. But you know the story? Jonah didn't want to do that. So instead, he heads the other direction. If you're there, chapter 1, look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee, not to Nineveh, but to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. So the other direction, away from the presence of the Lord. And as you know, if you know the story, that was a really bad idea. It was a really bad idea. The ship got caught in a storm, which led to Jonah getting thrown overboard. And then he was swallowed whole by that giant fish of some kind. And the story makes very clear that this was all of the Lord. The Lord was after his prophet. And after three days in the belly of that fish, Jonah repented. That's what we read in chapter 2. He has what, what appears to be this big turnaround. So the fish spits him out on the dry land. And finally, Jonah heads to where he was supposed to go in the very beginning. He goes to Nineveh. And when he arrives there, he preaches the message God had originally given him. He calls the people to repent. And they do. They do. The people of that great city, a city renowned for wickedness and violence, they all repent. From the king on down, they humble themselves and cry out to the Lord. And the Lord hears them, and he responds with mercy. Turn over to to the end of chapter 3. Look at the very last verse there of chapter 3. We read that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. He relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So the prophet Jonah repented, the people repented, and God is gracious to all of them. Great story, right? But here's the the problem. That might be the story that most people are familiar with, but that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. The story doesn't end, Jonah's book doesn't end there in chapter 3. And the book doesn't end there in chapter 3 because this story is about more than a guy just getting swallowed up by a big fish. Let me remind you of what the final chapter of this book says. Look at what happens in chapter 4. Verse 1. But it, speaking of God's grace towards the people of Nineveh, displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, and you got you to picture Jonah saying this with his like, angry face. 
I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Is this the right response, Jonah? Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made himself a booth there. And he sat under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. Maybe God will change his mind and still judge them. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And that's how the story of Jonah ends. And here's the thing. It ends that way because that ending is very crucial to the point of the book. You see, although this is a story that most of us are familiar with, too often we miss the big and the, the biting point of this book. The story of Jonah, the book of Jonah, isn't simply about a frustrated prophet who ran away and temporarily found, him, found himself turning to fish food. And said this book was, was really a lesson for all the nation of Israel. It was a lesson about not losing sight of your purpose. You see, the book of Jonah is really a divine shot across the bow for the people of Israel calling them to see that they were missing something crucial. They had lost sight of something important. Just like Jonah the prophet, they had lost sight of their purpose, their mission. They had lost sight of the gracious reason for their redemption. You see, God had redeemed them from their bondage to the Egyptians in order to make them into to a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a light to the Gentiles, a revelation to the rest of the world. They were to show the rest of the world who God is and what he is like. But instead, just like Jonah, they had become the introverted redeemed. The introverted redeemed. They began to care more about the everyday matters of their own lives, like, like their comfort, just like Jonah with his shade tree. They began to care more about those everyday matters than they did about making the ways of God and the grace of God shown to the other nations. You see, this very familiar book of Jonah is about so much more than a big fish. It's actually a call for the redeemed to realize that our redemption is about more than our redemption. Our redemption is about more than our redemption. And here's the thing. That isn't just a message that ancient Israel needed to hear, right? That's a message that we in the modern church, we need to be reminded of this. We need to be challenged by this 
often. Our redemption is about more than just our redemption. You see, like, just like Jonah and just like ancient Israel, we too can become callously introverted. Amen? We can become callously introverted. We can get all caught up in living for ourselves, living for our comfort. And we start griping out about our shade trees, the condition of our shade trees, you know, whatever that shade tree might be, your house or your job or your family, whatever else God has blessed you with in this life for your comfort. We focus on those things. We start griping about those things. And we lose sight of why we've been redeemed in the first place. We Christian people can lose sight of the fact that our redemption is about more than our redemption. And so, because of that, this morning as we come to the end of our gospel series, I want to make sure that we confront this Jonah temptation. I want to make sure we confront this Jonah temptation. Now, in this series, this gospel series that we've been working through this summer, we, as we've, we've dug into these glorious messages looking at the heart of our faith. We, we've talked about a lot of wonderful things that God has done for us. Amen? talked about a lot of wonderful things that God has done for us. We've talked about how, how even though we sinned and we rebelled against God, God showed us grace and mercy. He saved us, fallen and sinful people, from judgment through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We've talked about that. That's, that's good news. Amen? That's the gospel. God acted to save us. He acted to save us. And we talked about how God acting, God initiating, that was, that was our only hope, Right? That was, we're not going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That was our only hope. Just like ancient Israel, we were in bondage. We were in bondage with no hope of saving ourselves. We were in bondage to our sin and our guilt and our shame. But praise God, he rescued us. Amen? He delivered us. He acted through the sovereign choosing of the Father, through the purpose sacrifice of the Son, through the powerfully transforming work of the Holy Spirit. The entire Trinity, we looked at it, the entire Trinity worked together to deliver us, to change us, to save us and keep us secure in that salvation. But here's the thing, here's the danger in studying and drinking in these wonderful truths. The danger is because of all the things that have been done to us and for us, we can begin to think that everything is really all about us. That's all about us. We we come to a study like we've been going through this summer, marveling at our salvation. And we can end it by, by never lifting our eyes off of us. We could end up a bunch of navel-gazing Christians. We could end up like the ancient Israelites, thinking our redemption is simply all about our redemption. So, again, I want to end this series this morning by pointing us away from that danger. I want to point us to the solution for this temptation, this Jonah temptation. But in order to find the solution, we're actually going to look beyond the book of Jonah, beyond actually the, New, the Old Testament. And we're going to go to a New Testament book, uh, but a New Testament book that employs a lot of Old Testament language. We're going to end this series this morning by going to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. So now turn from Jonah over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you were here with us last week, you know that after we, we finished, we started talking about the, the fundamentals of the gospel, and then we talked about the glorious foundations of the gospel. Last week, we were talking about the ramifications of the gospel, okay? how we respond to the gospel. And we talked about last week how, how the gospel gathers us. We looked at the early church there in Acts chapter 2, and we saw the gospel bringing this diverse group together, 
giving them unity, giving them this new devotion. As they pursue that new gospel devotion, that, that unity strengthened. They grew together as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the Lord's table, and prayer. And so we saw that last week, how the gospel gathers us. But that's not all that the gospel does. God didn't just redeem us for us. There's a bigger purpose, another powerful ramification of our redemption. And here in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Peter makes that point for his readers. Let me show you this. Look at the text starting in verse 4. Starting there in verse 4, Peter gives us this very dynamic picture of Christ and the church. Look at what he writes. He says, as you come to him, to Christ, a living stone. He's a living stone rejected by men. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's good news, right? Will not be put to shame, will not be disappointed. So the honor is for you. Who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. And then watch this. But you, you Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may, what? Proclaim. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. You see, what Peter is doing there is he's showing us the powerful ramifications of the gospel. Peter is telling these Christians, as he unpacks from this dynamic picture of Christ in the church, he is telling them that who we are compels why we are. Who we are compels why we are. See, our redemption is for a purpose bigger than ourselves. We are, again, look at verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, we are here, just like ancient Israel, to be a light. Amen? We're here to be a light. We're here to be proclaimers. We're here to make much of the God who redeemed us. Who we are, the redeemed, compels why we are. We are here to proclaim our Redeemer. That's why we're here. We're here to say to the world, this is who God is. This is what he's like. That's the ramification of the gospel. We are gospel sent. We're not just gospel gathered, but we're also gospel sent. We're gospel sent, and Peter's readers here, they, they needed to be reminded of this. He's reminding his readers of this because they really needed it. You see, just like Jonah, Peter's readers were living in a time where there was a bully, someone bigger and stronger than them who was making life really difficult for them. In the times of Jonah, it was the Assyrians. Their capital city was Nineveh. And part of the reason that Jonah is so callous towards them It's because Assyria, the superpower of the day, they were a cruel, cruel people. They've been cruel towards Israel, cruel towards the other nations. And so part of Jonah's struggles is he just wants them to get what he thinks they deserve, right? He's bitter towards them. 
But for Peter's readers here, it wasn't Assyria. That, that world power had kind of faded. For them, it was the Romans. It was the Romans. They were the big bad bullies in, in this day. And once you understand, Peter's readers were living in a time when Roman oppression of Christians, it was intensifying. It started small. It started in towns and villages as people began persecuting Christians for not joining in with their, their pagan practices, their pagan worship. But it was now starting to spread throughout the empire, starting to be state-approved. Christians were finding themselves, Peter's readers were finding themselves living in an increasingly intolerant age. And although our, our culture is not exactly like the Roman culture, let's be honest, we too find ourselves living in an increasingly intolerant culture, society. Talk a lot about tolerance, right? You hear people talk about it all the time. But, but just try to bring up belief in a creator God to whom all men are accountable. <laughs> try to bring, bring that up in your workplace, in your school, on social media. See how tolerant people are of those ideas. But here's the thing. When we find ourselves in such a place, in a world that's hostile to our beliefs, hostile to us at times as a people, there are some very real temptations that come along with that, right? Very real temptations. Uh, like Jonah back in his day, we can become frustrated and bitter, right? Frustrated and bitter. I mean, I tried to emphasize it for you in that last chapter, Jonah. Jonah is so ridiculous in that chapter, isn't he? I mean, he's ridiculous. He is angry and depressed because God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. And he's angry about that. But he gets that way because his heart has become so bitter towards the Assyrians. He's so frustrated with them their hostility, that he longs for their downfall. And he doesn't want God to show them any grace. Don't show grace to those people. And if we're not careful, let's be honest, that can happen to us as well. Amen? That can happen to us as well. We can find ourselves getting all upset about these quote-unquote political losses. Angry, feeling opposed or challenged or like outsiders. And we can start to lose sight of grace. We can start to lose sight of grace. We can start to lose sight of the fact that those in our culture, they are not our enemies. Amen? They are simply fellow sinners who have yet to meet the Savior. We need to approach them with love, not bitterness. But in a hostile culture, that, that is a very real temptation, that temptation towards frustration and bitterness. But here, as you go through the book of 1 Peter... You see that Peter's readers seem to be dealing with a little different set of temptations. As, as you read through the letter, it seems that they were being tempted more towards assimilation into their culture or towards the opposite end of the spectrum, isolation. Uh, among Peter's readers, as you read through the letter, it seems that there were some who figured, if you can't beat them, join them. If you can't beat them, join them. And, and in one sense, that would have made life a lot easier for Peter's readers. You see, um, in that first century culture, the, the group of people that Peter's writing to, pagan, pagan worship was integrated into almost all of life. Uh, the local pagan temple was also the meat market. You go there, get a really good deal on some steaks. If you were a tradesman in that culture, you belonged to a guild, and, and that guild was connected with idol worship. Each guild had an, an idol, and you were expected, if that was your trade, you worshiped that idol. And in your town, in your city, they would have these feasts and festivals all the time to honor the pagan gods. And those, those feasts and festivals, there would often be times of, of drunkenness 
and sexual promiscuity. And it was seen in that culture, it was seen almost as your patriotic duty to join in with them in those feasts and festivals. And so when you didn't, as a Christian, when you didn't go along with those things, when you didn't join in those pagan practices, guess what? Life got really hard for you. You were seen as unpatriotic, as a poor employee. You're not contributing to the local economy. You were seen as a bad citizen. So all that to say, I mean, I say this all the time. I'm saying it again. This really happened. The real people that Peter is writing to. So in that culture, it would have been very easy for them, very tempting for them to say, let's, let's just join in a little bit. Let's just act like them a little bit. Let's just assimilate ourselves into the culture. But in this letter, Peter reminds his readers that who you are compels why you are. Who you are compels why you are. And he tells them, as those who have been redeemed, that's who you are, we are called to live holy lives. Look back at chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. Peter tells them, chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, this is who you are, part of the children of God, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Who you are compels why you are. You're united to this God who is holy. Therefore, you are to be what? Holy. Holy in all your conduct. And I bring that because I want you to understand that Peter's using the same kind of argument here in chapter 2. But here, he, he's not dealing as much with that temptation of assimilation as he's dealing with the other end of the spectrum, the temptation towards isolation. You see, in a hostile culture, if you don't join in with them, we can often be tempted to swing the pendulum the other way, Right? Let's just run and hide. Let's just run away. We can tempted, be tempted to retreat. You know, we're happy with our little Christian clique and our little Christian friends. And so we just keep our heads down, keep our mouths shut, and we retreat. But Peter makes it clear for his readers that that's not why we're here. Brothers and sisters, that's not why we're here. We're not here to retreat. We're not here to make little holy huddles. We're not here to repeat the same failure of Israel becoming the introverted redeemed. We're here for a different reason. And to really drive that point home, Peter picks up Old Testament language and he applies it to the church. Look at what he says there in verse 9 when he talks about who we are. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, A people for his own possession. Here Peter picks up these powerful Old Testament titles. And he applies them to these struggling believers. He applies them to the church. Now I'll be real transparent with you here. There are some people who really struggle with Peter doing this. With Peter taking these Old Testament titles and applying them to the New Testament church. Some people even go so far as to say, well, Peter here is not writing to all Christians. Instead he's writing to Jewish Christians. Maybe you've heard that. How many of you have heard people say that before? He's just writing to Jewish Christians. The argument goes this way. Well, Peter is the apostle to the Jews like Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So here he's just writing to, quote-unquote, Jewish Christians. There's problems with that. Part of that is you read through the letter and you realize he's writing to Gentiles. But one of the major problems with such thinking, oh, he's just writing to Jewish Christians, is, and I really want you to understand this, there are not separate divisions or classes of people in the church. There are not two peoples of God in the church. Now, 
there may be Christians who come from Jewish backgrounds and Christians that come from Gentile backgrounds. But in Christ, and we need to understand this, we've all been made one. We've all been made one. There is one united people of God in Jesus Christ. They're not Jewish Christians, this class over here, and then Gentile Christians, your second class over here. There's only one. One people of God in Jesus Christ. That's what the New Testament teaches. I could take you several references, but let me just give you one. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, remember at, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the way it used to be. But then he says this, listen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, and I love this, made us both one. Made us both one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall. And Paul goes on to say in that text that Christ did that. He broke down the dividing wall that he might create in himself one new man. One new people in the place of two. There's only one people of God in Jesus Christ. So whatever descriptive that Peter is using here to describe Christians, I want you to understand it's true of all Christians. It's true of all Christians. And here Peter is saying of all Christians... All Christians, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What he's doing is he's taking these four key Old Testament titles and he's showing us how they are truly realized, truly fulfilled now in the church. They're truly realized in the church. What was foreshadowed there in the Old Testament through all of those titles is now made an eternal reality for all the redeemed through Jesus Christ. Peter here is giving us a fourfold description of who we are through the gospel. Let's look at this. He begins this description by reminding his readers that we are now all part of an eternal family. We're all part of an eternal family. I love this. He says we are a chosen race. Now, when that title, chosen race, was used in the Old Testament, it was used to describe the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham. It was used to speak of the Jewish people, those who made up the 12 tribes descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. So it was a title that was used of Abraham, Abraham's physical descendants. It was a title that the Lord used to separate Abraham's physical descendants from all the other families, all the other tribes, all the other peoples of the earth. You're a chosen people. You're a chosen race. Actually, it's interesting here that the word that is translated here is race. It's not exactly like the way race, that term is used in our own culture. Actually, and this is a study that you could do separately, but the word race that's used in our culture, do you know that that was a, a language construct? It's not a biological reality. It's a language construct that was created to keep people of different skin colors separated and oppressed. Something that you should study and look at it. It's actually, I think, we, something we should stop using. It's a language construct that certain philosophers came up with to keep people isolated and oppressed. That's a, that's a different topic. Let me just say that. There's one race, Right? All one descendants, right? So, anyways, that, I guess it's a sermon for another time. But the word that's used here, it's a word that speaks of a blood relationship. And it speaks of families and descendants, like the nation of Israel coming from the family of Abraham. But what Peter does here is he takes 
that idea, that idea of a special and chosen family, and now he applies it to the church. He applies it to the church. You see, in Christ, and this is so beautiful, we are a chosen family. Come from different backgrounds, right? But we're all one. We are a chosen family. We've talked about that in this series, that God the Father chose us in Christ to save us and make us his own, make us his children forever. We've been brought into this family. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, you know, it's kind of like your real family. You didn't choose them, but you're stuck with them. That's the way it is in the church. (laughs) We didn't choose it, but we're stuck. No, but we're blessed, right? To be part of this chosen family. We've been brought into this family, the family of God. We're now brothers and sisters forever, forever. I mean, and here's the idea. Whatever bond Abraham's physical descendants had, it was just a preview of what we have in Christ. We are truly a chosen race, truly a chosen people, truly a chosen family, and we will be part of this family together forever, forever. In Christ, you've been made part of a forever family. There are times you feel alone, right? It doesn't have to be that way in Christ. You have a forever family. That's who we are. We are brought together, a chosen race, a chosen family. But that's not all that we are. Look at the text. Peter then goes on to say that not only are we a family, but we're also a royal priesthood. We are those intimately connected with the king. And that's what this second title, a royal priesthood, is driving at. Here what Peter is doing is he's quoting from Exodus 19.6. And there in Exodus 19, you read that God tells Moses, he says to Moses, say to the people, tell the people this. He says, say to them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Moses, tell the people, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's what you'll be, a kingdom of priests. Moses, go tell the people that. They're faithful. They'll be a kingdom of priests. Now, here's the thing. God had also instituted the Levitical priesthood for the nation of Israel. So there were a select tribe, the tribe of Levi, and men in that tribe who were to serve as priests. So here's an important question. How was the entire nation, if there was a select tribe, how was the entire nation to be a kingdom of priests? Well, listen, as one commentator explains, the motivating idea here in Exodus 19.6 is not an argument against the Levitical priesthood, but simply showing that as Israel remains loyal to the covenant, they will have holy God for their king, and like priests, they will have a special, intimate relationship with him. They will be a nation intimately connected with God. And that's why when Peter quotes the text here, instead of simply saying a kingdom of priests, he says kingly or royal priests. You see, he's latching on to this idea of being intimately connected with the king. It's like the priests who served the king. They had special access to them, to him. So they, they knew the king. They ministered to the king. They ministered for the king. They proclaimed his ways to others. And that's the way we are to be with our king. Or to proclaim his glory to others. We have intimate, special intimate access to him. And here's the thing. That's what Israel was to do as a nation. They were to proclaim his glory to others. So one commentator pointed out, Israel's priesthood was such that they were, listen, to listen to this, they were to mirror to the nations 
the glory of Yahweh so that all the nations would see that no God rivals the Lord. That's what they were to do. They were to mirror God's glory so that all the nations could see your gods are nothing compared to the true and living God. But the story of Jonah shows us they they failed at that. Instead of delighting to proclaim the glory of their God, delighting in his mercy and grace, they had grown introverted and self-absorbed. But here's the thing. Here's the convicting reality for all of us. Whatever access the nation of Israel had to Yahweh, guess what? It It pales in comparison to the access that we have. Amen? It pales in comparison. So if they were to reflect his glory by having that intimate access to him, how much more so are we to reflect the glory of our God to all those around us? I mean, they had him dwelling in their midst in a tabernacle. We have God himself dwelling in our very own person. Isn't that staggering to think about? I mean, sometimes you re- if you, you really process that, just it blows your mind. But Paul tells the Corinthians, your body, your body is the temple, the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. He's dwelling in us. Ancient Israel had, had God dwelling in their midst in the, the tabernacle and the temple, but, but they were veiled off from his presence, right? And only one man, the high priest, on only one day of year, the day of atonement, could go into the presence. And he had to take blood, sacrifice. But what happened when Jesus died on the cross? What happened? Yeah, that veil was ripped top to bottom. And what is it saying? It's saying all of us, everyone who puts their trust in Christ, not a select few, every one of us have intimate access to our God. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. Amen? Every single one of us. I love this. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3. And he's making a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he says, we all, under the new covenant... He says, we all, I love this, we all with unveiled face, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we are exposed to the glory of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, we are being changed by it. This is the glorious, intimate relationship that we have with our God as royal priests. And we're being transformed. But here's the thing, that's not simply for our own pleasure. If Israel, through their intimacy with the, with the Lord, was to reflect his glory to the nations, how much more should we? We've been given far greater intimacy. We've been, we've been made one with Christ. And so, as a royal priesthood, as, as the fulfillment of what Israel was just a foreshadowing, we are called to make known the ways and the wonders of our God. We're to stand before the nations and proclaim, this is our God. This is what he's like. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's our mission, brothers and sisters. Do we lose sight of that? Yeah, we do. But that's our mission. And here's the thing. That mission is to stand above every other allegiance that we might have. It's to stand above every other allegiance. And Peter drives that point home in the third title that he uses here. Look at, he calls the church a holy nation. A holy nation. And what he is telling his readers by that title, holy nation, is that we are a set-apart people. That's what he means, holy, here. We are those who've been set apart. We've been set apart for God. We are holy to the Lord. And he says, we are a holy nation. How are we a nation? Well, we are a nation without borders. Amen? 
We are one people, united, without borders. We are people who are pledged our allegiance to the king of kings. Amen? We are part of his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. And as that kingdom, as that holy nation, this is our charter, right? The word is our charter. The gospel is our anthem. And our victory is secured. Amen? Our victory is secured. It's already won. And I want you to understand, that, that was a truth that Peter's readers really needed to hear. They really needed to hear that. See, they lived in a culture where Rome ruled everything, and Rome ruled with an iron fist. And Rome demanded allegiance. And Rome was always claiming victory. But Peter here is reminding his readers, you're part of something so much bigger. You're part of something so much bigger. You're part of something greater than Rome. You're part of one people, one nation, truly under God, truly indivisible, which will last forever. You are a holy Nation, the people of God. They needed to hear that. And guess what, brothers and sisters? We need to hear that as well. Amen? We need to hear that as well. We need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that this world is not our home. And that means this nation is not our hope. Amen? I think sometimes in the last election cycle it showed. We kind of lose sight of that sometimes. But this nation is not our hope. Now, don't misunderstand me. I praise God for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. I praise God that my girls get to grow up enjoying some of the freedoms that they have here, that we have here. I mean, there are some really ugly places to grow up around the world. So I praise God for our freedoms. But, but we better not sell our souls to try to cling on to those, hold on to those freedoms. Amen? We better not surrender our testimony to try to chase the quote-unquote American dream. Because ultimately, brothers and sisters, our allegiance is not to this country. It's ultimately not to this country. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is to his mission. And we are part of a greater nation, a heavenly kingdom. We are his people. We're his people. And he says that, Peter says that explicitly in the final title here. He says we are a people for his own possession. And what that means, it's it's a way of saying we are God's treasured possession. Isn't that cool? We're God's treasured possession. We belong to him. We are dear to him. We are the children of God, the bride of Christ, the dwelling place of the Spirit. That's the reality of the church. Some people bash the church all the time. But we lose sight of how precious the church is to our God. We are his, and we're his because we were bought with a price. I mean, we've talked about that repeatedly in this series. God, from his mercy and grace, he paid the price to ransom us from judgment, to ransom us from our bondage to sin, to ransom us from our darkness and our deadness. Jesus Christ paid the price. We talked about this. He, he endured judgment the likes of which we cannot fathom. And praise God, we won't ever have to. Because of Jesus, we won't ever have to. Paid the price, so we're his. We're special, we're We're unique. The church is like nothing else in history. We belong always and forever. We're his. We belong always and forever to the Lord. And that's who we are. That's who we are. Paul's taken these, or Peter's taken these rich titles and he's, he's applied them to the church. He's applied them to these struggling, persecuted, discouraged believers so that they could see clearly who they are. But he applied the, these titles to them not simply for, for navel-gazing purposes, personal comfort. But Peter is showing them who they are so that they might understand then why they are. 
Who we are compels why we are. And that's what Peter shows in the rest of this verse. I'll do this quickly. But he shows us that we've been redeemed for a purpose bigger than ourselves. We've been redeemed to proclaim. Peter says, you are all of these things, look at the verse, so that you may proclaim. I may proclaim. Again, among Peter's readers, there would have been a really powerful temptation to retreat. Living in a hostile culture, there's a very real temptation, a very easy temptation to fall into, to, to run and hide. That's very appealing. You know, keep quiet. Keep your head down. Don't say anything at school, on social media, and your job that's going to ruffle anybody's feathers. Just keep your head down and keep your mouth shut. That's a very real temptation, amen? But Peter says, that's not why we're here. Brothers and sisters, we are not here for our own comfort and ease. We're not here for our own comfort and ease. And so we've been brought into this eternal family. We've been given this intimate access to the king. We've been made one holy nation belonging to God himself for, mark this down, for him. Not for us. We're here to proclaim the excellencies of him. Not, this is the most comfortable life you can live. Come be a Christian. <laughs> no, we're here for him. Proclaim him, glorify him, share about him. We who have tasted the grace and mercy of our God, we get to tell people what it's like. Let me tell you about him. So instead of staying quiet, what we're called to do is raise our voices. We're called to proclaim. And here's the thing, we get to do that together. Not as a bunch of isolated individuals, but we get to do that together. Last Sunday we talked about how the gospel gathers us. But as we're gospel gathered, we come together, but also as we're gospel sent. We do that together. We do that together. Again, you look at this passage. This isn't a passage describing Christians as a bunch of isolated individuals. Just look at the language. All these titles, race, priesthood, nation, people, those are all corporate ideas. They're all group titles. So what it's saying is we're to proclaim the excellencies of him together. Together. And we do this in different ways. We do this in different ways. Some of us get to do this through preaching. They're leading Bible studies. Some get to invite neighbors to come hear sermons or to come join a Bible study. Some teach the children. Others lead us in congregational singing. Some serve in community events. Yesterday we had the Sports Outreach Northwest banquet talking about these, these outreach events that we're going to be doing. So some come and serve in those ways. Some will be manning the booth or doing the parking next, next Saturday at this festival up here in Tahalik. There's all these different ways. But here's the thing. I want you to understand. All of us are called to serve together using our various gifts to proclaim to the world, this is what our God is like. All of us together, not just a few people. All of us working together to proclaim to the world, this is what our God is like. We get to do this together. The gospel sends us together. Some, it sends to different places. To Japan, like the Burns. To Poland, like the Gross, they'll be here next week, the Gross, sharing with us about their ministry. Or some people send us up to the UW, like the Taps. But it doesn't send us alone. That's what you understand. This isn't a call to go out by yourself. This is what we do together. We work together, one body, one people, one family, proclaiming the excellencies of our God. And this is, this is so important. The heart of the excellencies that we are to proclaim is the heart of our faith, the gospel message. That's the heart of the excellencies that we are to proclaim. That's actually what this word that's used in this text, excellencies, that's what it's pointing to. It's pointing to the gospel message. See, the, the Greek term that Peter uses here is a word that was often used to describe God's mighty works. 
Uh, in the literature of Peter's day, this word was commonly used to describe the powerful acts, the miraculous deeds attributed to a god. As one commentator explains, this Greek term that's used here when applied to a god does not simply denote virtues or intrinsic qualities, but it speaks of the manifestations of his power. And here's the thing. In the scriptures, the greatest manifestation of the power of God is his work of redemption. The greatest manifestation of the power of God is his work of redemption. There's no greater work than that. Uh, In the Old Testament, um, God's redeeming work, it was seen as the chief manifestation of his strength. For, For ancient Israel, the exodus was a greater display of power than the flood or even creation itself. The psalmist would say, creation is the work of God's fingers. But the exodus, our redemption, that was his strong hand and his outstretched arm. But here's the thing, the exodus from Egypt, that was only a foreshadowing, right? Of the greater exodus that we have experienced through Jesus Christ. But think about this, brothers and sisters. The power on display in our salvation is staggering. Staggering. I mean, there are things going on there. We can't even scratch the surface of understanding. Think about the incarnation itself. Here is the eternal son of God who takes upon himself our humanity. One person, two natures. Hypostatic union. Theologians have been trying to figure out ways to articulate that for 2,000 years. But it's just staggering. It's just staggering, that power. One person, two natures, miraculous. And that was just the beginning of the miracles. As God walked among us, as Jesus Christ lived among us, we see this. We see him healing diseases. We see him silencing the wind and the waves. We see him driving out legions of demons. We see him raising the dead. But all those things, that was just him warming up, right? The greatest display of power in the history of history was the God-man laying down his life, becoming the Passover lamb to pay the price. I mean, think about it. The price that each one of us would have to pay. That would have taken us eternity. But he paid that price to free his people from sin and judgment. And then he rose on the third day defeating sin and death and the grave and he poured out his spirit upon us and he made us children of God. He made us a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for God's own possession. People who had been, we've been nothing. We've been outsiders. And he changed everything. And he did it all as a revelation of his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And here's the thing. That's what we're blessed to proclaim. That's what we're blessed to proclaim. We get to tell the world, this is what God is like. This is what he's done. We get to proclaim his excellencies, his mighty work of redemption. And brothers and sisters, here's what you get to do. You get to proclaim that you have personally experienced it. You see, look at the text here. Peter's not talking about a hypothetical deliverance. He's not talking about potential salvation. He's not talking about what, what we hope will happen. Look at the text. He says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's talking about something that's happened to you, to me. Think about the transformation you've experienced in your life through the saving grace of God. The reality is, you were once in darkness. I was once in darkness. We were once in sin and ignorance and unbelief. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember what that was like? You remember what that was like? Some of you go, I don't know if I want to go back there, Ryan. I don't even know if I could think about that. 
you remember what that was like? Remember the, the emptiness? Some of you. Remember the frustration? There's got to be more to life than this. Remember the discouragement? The fear? The doubts? Remember what it was like? Living in the darkness. But then, and this is what we get to tell people, then from God's sovereign grace, because of his glorious mercy, he called you. He called you. The gospel message came to you. And maybe it was the first time you heard it. Maybe it was the hundredth time you heard it. But all of a sudden, you, you saw it. You saw it. You tasted it. Hope. Truth. Freedom. Glory. You, you experienced. Someone proclaimed to you the excellencies of God. And through that proclamation, through that spirit-empowered proclamation, you saw and you believed. And you were saved. You were called out by the grace of God. And now you live in the light. Happened to you. Happened to me. Now you live in the light. And here's the thing. I know that living in the light, living in this world as a Christian, it's not all peaches and cream. Right? But it does mean that you're not alone anymore. You're not alone anymore. It does mean that you now have true hope. And real strength. You've been in those moments when you go, the only reason I ever got through that was God. Amen? Real strength. Abiding peace. Peace that you go, this doesn't make any sense. Everything feels like it's falling apart around me. But in the storm, I have peace. Because I know he's with me. And I know he has a plan and a purpose for me. I know he's not abandoning me. That's our reality now. We live in the light. We're part of a forever family. We get to know God and be known by God. We have an eternal home, an unshakable kingdom in the heavens. We're in the light. It means we're now His. We're now with God in the light, in His light, in His marvelous light. Now everything has changed. And that's what Peter is talking about. That's what he's reminding his readers. That's what we're called to proclaim. And that proclamation is compelled by who we are. Who we are compels why we are. We are the redeemed. And our redemption compels us to proclaim the glory of our redeemer. That's how we respond to the gospel. The gospel sends us. Because what is done in us, it sends us. So let me just end with this challenge. This question. Is it sending you? We go together. <laughs> Let me ask you a personal question. As an individual, is it sending you? And what, I'm, what I mean by that is how are you responding to the gospel? Is this what we talked about this morning? Is this how you are responding to the gospel? And over the summer, 12, 12 Sundays I think we spent, we've talked about a lot of rich gospel truth. Sunday after Sunday, we dove into the, the mercy and the grace and kindness of our God. We went, we went floor to ceiling on the gospel. We packed the fundamentals. We, we, we marveled at the foundations. And over and over again, all what we saw is this all of grace. All of grace. It's all of grace. God has been so gracious, so wonderful, so loving to us. I mean, when we understand it, salvation is so amazing. So how are you responding to that? 
Here's the thing. If we get this, if we truly understand who we now are in Christ, what he has done for this, how in the world can we keep silent about that? I mean, how can we just sit on that? Well, I got other stuff to talk about. Really? How can we go on, brothers and sisters, seriously, spending all of our time talking about football or politics or complaining that our shade tree isn't what we expected it to be? When we have this glorious gospel message, the heart of our faith. See, we respond like Jonah when we lose sight of who we are. Who we are compels why we are. So if we understand the gospel, it will compel us to proclaim what has happened to us. Who we are compels why we are. That's the reality of the gospel. That's the outworking of the gospel. That's the ramification of the gospel. Our redemption is about more than just our redemption. We are redeemed. We are the people of God in order to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So my question, are you? Are you? I'm asking that as a churchy question. I'm asking that as a real life question. Look at your life. Are you? Are you? Let, let that be our response to the 12 weeks in this. Let that be how we, we apply this wonderful, rich season that we had together studying the gospel. Let us be a people unlike Jonah. Let's be a people who are truly gospel sent. I know we've gone long today, but we're going to close our service together um, with it. David, actually, why don't we come and close us in a song? Okay? So I'll pray, and we'll close our service together in song this morning. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us 12 weeks to just behold and marvel at your grace, your love towards us. What a plan. We would would have never come up with a plan like yours. We thank you. We thank you that you have not left us up to our own devices. That you have not rejected us and turned away from us like, like we did to you. You have not left us dead in our sins and trespasses under judgment. But in your grace and mercy, you did everything necessary to save us. And I pray for all of our hearts this morning. So many of us in this room, massive transformations in our life. Who we used to be, who we are now. Some of us don't even want to think about who we used to be. I pray for our hearts. Make them soft and tender towards your mercy and grace. Help us to marvel again at what you've done in us, who you've made us to be, an eternal family, never alone, brothers and sisters with a a glorious heavenly father who, who loves us as the perfect father over us forever. royal priests those who have intimate access to you and get to proclaim to the world what you're like who you are well thank you for making us part of a kingdom that stands above the kingdoms of this world our hope is not in this nation or any other nation it's not in any group of people our hope is in Jesus Christ and his finished work We thank you for giving us that hope. 
We thank you that we are yours. We are your treasured possession. But I pray for our hearts that you would make us tender towards those truths so that as we understand those truths, we would understand there are others around us that need to hear those truths. Those are others around us who need to be brought into the eternal family. There are others around us who need the joy and the peace that comes from walking with you. There are others around us who are living like this world is their hope, and they need to know that there's a greater hope. There are others around us who need to be part of this dear, precious people. So help us not be callously introverted like Jonah or like ancient Israel, like so often we're tempted to be. Help us living in this culture not to to run and hide, just keep our mouths shut. But help us to be a people who raise our voice and say, this is who God is. This is what he has done. This is where real hope and true joy and deep peace is found. Help us to be proclaimers. Help us to understand that we are gospel sent. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.